pretty much everybody believes in somatic therapy. But I just didn't see it. I'd been treated once uh, by a Reiki healer, and I think I just fell asleep. There was no, I didn't feel any better afterwards. You must have felt so refreshed afterwards. Come on. No, because I had a nice nap. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But then, but then, so I had the experience with the shaman where clearly he detected something and he treated it with, with heat. And I did feel uh, a little better afterwards, but more dramatically, I tried 5-MeO-DMT and uh, for the first time just a few months ago, amazing experience. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing more research come forth on what that drug can do uh, for people. But after the session, I found myself vibrating for a good 45 minutes. And it, the, it suddenly came to me in this burst because during a 5-MeO session, when you're fully under, your conscious, your left brain is offline, your vocabulary, the center that records things, everything's offline. And when it came back, my right brain was screaming at me internally that, of course, somatic therapy works, you idiot. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we are talking with Sanjay Singhal, tech entrepreneur, author, and one of the leading psychedelic philanthropists out there. Our conversation explores his personal journey through his bipolar disorder and his daughter's struggle with anorexia and how psychedelics have helped them, what excites him about the emerging psychedelics industry, and what a better world looks like to him if all the hopes around psychedelics come to fruition. But before we get started, here's your reminder to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Towards the end of the episode, we'll dive into our how-to segment where listeners call in and ask a question for me to answer. If you have a question about mental health, psychedelics, or anything we've chatted about, drop us a note at fieldtripping at castmedia.com or leave a voice recording at speakpipe.com slash fieldtripping. And if you love the show, leave us your thoughts in a review on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated and helps us grow. Just go to our show on the app, scroll down, and click five stars, then drop us a review where it says, write review. Now, let's hit up some news to trip over. A review on psychoplastogens from UC Davis concluded that research on psychedelics and psychoplastogens brings us one step closer to actually curing mental illness by rectifying the underlying pathophysiology of disorders like depression and moving beyond simply treating disease symptoms. However, the authors found that an equally important consideration in the therapeutic value of psychedelics and psychoplastogens will be in figuring out how to most effectively deploy these medicines at scale, a problem that we at Fieldtrip are working on every day, both through our clinics and our drug development work on FT-104 and other potential new pipeline projects. Also, our friends at Beckley SciTech have dosed a preliminary cohort of healthy volunteers with an intranasal formulation of 5-MeO-DMT. This molecule naturally occurs in the venom of Ufo alvarius, a toad found in northern Mexico and southwestern U.S. The experience of smoking 5-MeO-DMT is reported to be a powerful and short-acting experience. 
The phase one study is designed as a double-blind, randomized, single ascending dose study to evaluate the safety and tolerability of a single intranasal dose of 5-MeO-DMT in psychedelic naive healthy subjects. This is the first clinical study to measure the pharmacokinetics and metabolism of 5-MeO-DMT delivered intranasally. Now, on to today's conversation. Today, I'm here with Sanjay Singhal, Canadian tech entrepreneur and author, best known for founding and selling audiobooks.com. These days, Sanjay's passion and attention lies in philanthropy. He launched the Nikayan Foundation in 2019 to fund mental health research with a focus on psychedelic therapies to treat mental disorders, including anorexia, depression, and PTSD. The Nikayan Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy, now housed at the University Health Network in Toronto, currently funds research trials around the world for psychedelic science. And everyone should know that Sanjay is one of the earliest investors and an advisor to Field Trip. Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Field Tripping. Thanks for having me, Ronan. Looking forward to it. Awesome. I see you have a nice fancy mic for podcasting as well, which is a good sign. Yeah, no, I, I got it last week. It doesn't stop me from saying um too much, but keep an eye on that. <laughs> Don't worry. I say it all the time. This is podcasting. It's perfectly permitted as far as I can. In fact, it may be encouraged in podcasting. For all the people who have been listening, can you tell us how your adventure into psychedelics and I guess also specifically philanthropy from the psychedelic perspective all got started? Sure. Well, I'm fairly open with people I'm close to to let them know that I'm bipolar myself. I was diagnosed around age 30. It took a while for me to accept the diagnosis because back then it was still commonly known as being manic depressive. I tended to think of it as being crazy. So I didn't want to take the, the right medications. I, I thought, no, I'm depressed. I'm depressed. That was a much more acceptable diagnosis. Yeah. So I have this, um, this history of mental health you know, concerns myself. I eventually did get on the right medication. Um, like when I was 38 years old, a drug called Lamotrigine, which is, I would call it underprescribed. It's an amazing uh, drug for people with mood disorders. And it was a particular psychiatrist who told me about it and said, yeah, you've been prescribed all these other things, but this is a new, a novel drug. It's an anti-epileptic that was discovered by accident during trials to treat bipolar depression. And uh, it's been a godsend for me over the last 20 years. The other, uh, I guess, propelling factor here is my daughter, who's 26 years old now, was diagnosed at age eight with anorexia. And she's been hospitalized at age eight. At age eight. Oh, I didn't realize. Yes. Wow. Okay. She was hospitalized at age eight. She was hospitalized again at age 16. She's doing, she's doing well in the sense that she's now a third year psychiatry resident at the uh, University of Toronto. But I would say the anorexia is still there. It's very prevalent. But psychedelics access has helped her uh, gain hope and, and continue with her studies. Psychedelics have helped me uh, develop myself as, as a human. I wouldn't say it's particularly treated the bipolar disorder, but I haven't been seeking to treat the bipolar disorder. In this particular case, the, the pharmaceutical helps me uh, quite effectively. But... But they've helped me develop as as a person. So I, I would say, you know, it, this, that was a really long-winded answer to your question where um, it's my own personal issues, my own personal battles with um, bipolar disorder and my daughter's battles with anorexia that have kind of put me into the position I'm in now with uh, supporting psychedelic research. And what was the precipitating factor to start the exploration into psychedelic research? I mean, obviously, 
your daughter's anorexia, your own struggles as well. But presumably there was a moment where it's like, why, why aren't I exploring this? Or like, wow, that's really interesting. I'm going to devote my time and effort uh, to that as opposed to doing what you were doing. I mean, for everybody who's listening, Sanjay um, came to our old office, I guess it was late 2018, early 2019, probably early 2019, uh, when we had reached out actually to uh, Rotem, who's a researcher at the University of Toronto, who had conducted the the first um, uh, study looking at microdosing, I think, just relying on data from Reddit, all that kind of stuff. And Rotem showed up uh, with Sanjay and and uh, Sanjay, I, I don't know exactly the relationship to Niraj, but your friend or colleague Niraj. Um, and I think Thomas was at that meeting as well. And and we were just getting started at Field Trip. We had no idea what we were doing, but we talked a pretty good game. Um, and, uh, and so they all showed up. Uh, we ended up not doing much with Rotem, even though that was the impetus for the initial meeting. Um, but Sanjay became one of Field Trip's you know, best friends, best assets, key resources, and has been an instrumental, I think, part of the evolution of Field Trip. But you had already been actively working in the space with psychedelics uh, at that first um, fortuitous meeting with Field Trip. So how did you get to that point? Well, I, I got to say, first of all, you guys talked a great game. Because <laughs> at that point, my friend Neeraj and I were thinking about getting into psychedelic clinics. I'll go back in, in time here in a second to explain how we got to that point. But we wanted to um, we thought psychedelics clinics were where the game was going to be played. It's not, it wasn't, there's going to be development of new molecules and of course, standard pharmaceutical development. But really at the end of the day, what we were most excited about was treating people, which is why I got so excited with the talk you guys had. And, and in fact, decided in that meeting that whatever money I had set aside to open up clinics, I was just going to give it to you instead, which was one of the most brilliant decisions I ever made, both functionally to get treatment out there and get clinics built as well as you know, Field Trip has done extremely well financially for me, and all of that money is earmarked for philanthropy. So thank you for that. It's, it's helped propel my, uh, my ambitions forward. But I got into this because about six months prior to that, I had met Robin Carhart-Harris at a conference uh, here in Toronto, a biohacking conference, and I wasn't really paying attention to the main program. I was in, in, a, in a room experimenting with a massage chair, and somebody came in and said, hey, there's this guy and he's talking about psilocybin and anorexia. Uh, and I, I was like, I don't know what psilocybin is, but sure, let's, I'll go listen. I went to listen, was amazed at the presentation and my eyes were really open. I tried mushrooms once recreationally. I think everybody's got that experience. I tried it once. Kind of, yeah. Kind of funny, funny experience. And I, so I went to talk to him afterward. The guy was mobbed. Uh, and I just said, tell you what, I can't get your time now. I'll drive you to the airport when you're, when you're done here. Drove him to the airport. He filled me in more. I asked lots of questions. He invited me to come visit him in London. So my daughter and I flew to London a few weeks later, met with his whole team at Imperial College in London and thought, wow, I had no idea. Given that there was a ton of research done on this stuff 50 years ago uh, and there had been a little bit of research going on recently. I was shocked that I'd never heard. I'd just never been exposed to the idea that psychedelics could be used to treat mental disorders in, in any way. And yet, yeah, I, the mainstream media just wasn't covering it. So at the time, I again, I'd set aside money for eventually doing research into treating anorexia and decided, well, um, I would, I'd be happy to write a check to fund 
the creation of Robin's uh, Psychedelic Research Center at Imperial, which became the world's first real psychedelic research center at a major university or a major center of any sort. And uh, and then, then that launched the ride. Then I started reading. Then I started meeting people. I met Rick Doblin at MAPS, discovered the work they were doing, funded an anorexia trial with MDMA, uh, met the folks at USONA Institute, Bill Linton, Tora Patterson, decided to fund some work they're doing with 5-MeO-DMT, got super, super excited about 5-MeO-DMT. And since then, you know, then we had the opportunity to fund something in our backyard. And that was University Health Network. And after talking to them and, and figuring out we were all on the same page in terms of which molecules, which indications we wanted to treat, got excited about that and wrote a big check to University Health Network and really excited at what, whatever is going to come next. And, and outside of the sort of intellectual um, analysis of this, I mean, speaking to Robin uh, and all that kind of stuff, when did you decide to make the leap into, well, I should understand this personally beyond just... Um, beyond just, you know, the academic considerations of what I hear, because I think in one of the first meetings uh, that we had, you were talking about how one of your experience experiences had helped you get off of the bipolar medication that you were taking at the time, uh, you know, for an ex- extended, spirit, uh, extended period. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess the question is, actually, there's two questions I have, because I have really no idea what you were doing between like the sale of audiobooks.com to the date of our meeting uh, and just never come up in our many, many conversations. So I'd love to hear about, you know, what you were doing, where your head was at, what you were thinking until this became, uh, you know, a clear focus for you. Uh, and then when did you embark on to the personal uh, side of experience with, with psychedelics? Sure. Well, okay. So talking about what I was doing beforehand is kind of a nice contrast to what I'm doing now, because I tend to think of myself, I'm thinking about writing a book. Well, I think I've mentioned this to you. I'm thinking yeah. about writing a book and I've been wrestling with what the title is going to be because I'm trying to figure out what the message is. I've, I've, I've become very concerned about philanthropy and the state of philanthropy, about the cl- global climate crisis, about the growing gap between uh, the wealthy and the, and, and the poor. And these are all things that I was never concerned about before. And it's, it's a direct result of, of psychedelics and realizing we're not alone, that we're all in this together, that I should be thinking about society first and myself second. And I think this is a journey that a lot of people who, who take psychedelics, that they embark on. And so I think of myself now, and this is my working title for the book. Okay, so you're the first person to hear this and you can... If I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be looking at your eyes to see what your reaction is on this. I'm going to call okay. myself the bipolar philanthropist okay. because I was bipolar then. I'm still bipolar now, but I've gone from being a bipolar capitalist, wealth-obsessed uh, uh, entrepreneur to being a bipolar philanthropist. And I think this is a, a track that a lot of people can go on. And I think a lot of mental disorders, certainly anorexia and and bipolar disorder are still stigmatized in society. And it was pointed out to me by Dr. Richard Miller on a podcast last week, in fact, that cancer used to be stigmatized. And then people started talking about it. You couldn't talk about having cancer. People would think that you were dirty and that it was bad hygiene or something had resulted in you having cancer and it was contagious and you should be avoided. And I think people feel that about mental disorders sometimes. They're afraid of them. They want to stay away from them. But it's something I have. It's something my daughter has. Um, and, and they're treatable. And they're things that you can work towards 
uh, improving from and they, they shouldn't be stigmatized. So the more I talk about it, the more perhaps people realize that you can have a mental disorder and still be successful, but still be ha- happy, flourish in life, which all of which I consider myself uh, to be doing. So after I sold my company, I sold it for way more money than I thought I ever would and didn't have to work again. I, I, so I got into venture capital because that was glamorous. I thought, hey, you know, I want other people to come to me and, and ask for money. That was a horrible idea. I <laughs> created a venture fund with 500 startups that's done extremely well financially, but I didn't like being responsible for other people's money. And so that happened to, to shut down a couple of years later over, over some unrelated uh, matters that gave me an opportunity to, to go explore something else. And then, so then, then, then I got around to doing what most people with a lot, most guys, any most, okay. Most immature guys with a lot of money and too much time decide to do, which, which is, is open a bar. most guys uh, who have money. <laughs> so I decided to open a bar and you've been there. The whole field trip team's been there. It's been, a, it's an awesome bar. All right. Yeah. It was where we first had that meeting to talk about the future of field trip. Coffee yeah. Oyster Champagne. There's my plug. Coffee Oyster Champagne on King West in in Toronto. It's an awesome place. I'm going to plug it as well because like it's got it's got that uh, what do they call it um, unexpected delight associated with it. I won't ruin the secret, although I don't know if it's much of a secret anymore. But anyone who's coming to Toronto should check it out because it is a very cool experience. And I'm not just saying that because Sanjay is as uh, a friend and an advisor and investor. It is actually an amazing experience. So you should definitely check it out. Sorry, I cut you off, but it was no, a sincere thank, plug. Thank you, Ron. I, I appreciate the plug. Uh, I found it very fulfilling. I discovered, I think, one of my call in life is to throw a good party. I love throwing a good party. And, and owning a place like that is like throwing a good party every night. So I found that fulfilling for a little while. But then in the midst of planning for an expansion or the next, the next incarnation of, of a hospitality venue stumbled into philanthropy. I had asked a colleague of mine who had sold his company for a lot, in fact, for a lot more than what I sold mine for. I was setting up a private foundation and I called him and said, can you give me some advice on setting up a foundation? And it's in, I've, I found it really interesting at the time. His biggest piece of advice is, was be careful because you're going to find it really difficult to find good causes that you can direct your money towards. Hmm. And he wasn't wrong. Like if you start digging into most charities, you'll find that they're doing good work, but they're not necessarily solving a problem. And this is where my current philosophy is starting to evolve about being the bipolar philanthropist. What I believe now is that the most successful among us that have had the most luck in terms of who our parents were, where we were born, the societies, societies we were brought up in, the color of our skin. It's not our responsibility to make money and then give that money to worthy causes. It's our responsibility to put our brains where our money is and use that to develop solutions for the problems of society. So for example, you know, I, I don't think giving a dollar to the homeless guy on the corner is going to solve his problem, so I don't do it. But I'm not doing anything else to try and solve that problem either. And that's, that's, that's problematic. So I'm thinking now, you know, with psychedelics, with funding research into psychedelics, I feel like I'm solving a problem. I'm feeling like I can 
pour millions of dollars into this avenue of philanthropy, and I'm actually making people better, making society better, making people think more globally uh, and more about society. And, and we're all going to work together to, to make the planet a better, better place to live with, with, with climate change, with social inequality, with racial injustice. And psychedelics can help with all of this. And I urge everyone, think about how you could solve this problem. You know, how could, didn't somebody just ask Elon Musk to serve world, say, uh, to, to solve world hunger? Um, yeah. And he said, do you know the story, Ronan, on this uh, one? Yeah, I was just reading it. Someone said, uh, you know, with something like uh, 2% of Elon Musk's uh, wealth, which is, I think, north of $200 billion now, uh, $6 billion would solve world hunger. And his response um, and I saw Christian Angermeyer uh, from a Thai weigh in on this because I wasn't fully following it until Christian kind of weighed in. His response was, someone show me that $6 billion will solve world hunger and I'll write a check tomorrow. Um, and uh, it was, uh, I think, a provocation to say, like, there's a lot of organizations trying to do a whole lot, but not not all of them or possibly very few of them actually effective at what they're trying to do. Um, so money is great, but it's got to be put into action um, effectively in order for it to solve the problem. That, that's my read of the story. I don't know if you no, see it differently. It, exactly. It has to be put into, uh, into action effectively. And where are the big, hairy, audacious projects, right? We, we do have some. I mean, you know, Rick Doblin and all of his efforts over the last 30 years to legalize MDMA for psychotherapy that's a big, hairy, audacious goal. It took freaking forever to, to, to fight back on the war on drugs. And what Elon Musk is doing himself with SpaceX and with uh, Tesla, those are big, audacious goals. And despite the fact that he's got a lot of money now, he did most of it with other people's money. It was his ideas that propelled mm -hmm. people into action. Where are those? Rather than you know, Jeff Bezos saying, oh, I'm going to build a rocket company too. Where's his big, hairy goal? Where's the, the giant solar... Uh, uh, farm across the Sahara Desert or, you know, space elevators or just amazing new technologies that are going to propel the human race forward. Where's the interstate highway system in Africa? Um, you know, these are things that private entrepreneurs, the ideas they'll come up with, the governments can't cooperate on. I'd love to see more thinking uh, going into solving these problems. Yeah, 100%. And it's also a function of... Um... I think the 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 capitalist market, not, not to make a critique of it, but it really is that the most competent people, um, at least in terms of operating businesses, tend to focus on massive, massive problems that it's if it's less than a multi-billion dollar problem, it's not worth their attention. Um, and there are lots of multi-billion dollar problems, don't get me wrong, but it also creates like there's this bar that the most competent people only focus on the big challenges and there's like lots of little things, right? Like, you know, uh, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And so there's a lot of little projects and little businesses. I mean, I've had tons of business ideas where it's like, oh, that's a great idea, but is it worth my time to try and work on that? Probably not. There's probably bigger fish to fry. Um, and so it creates a... Uh, um, maybe a misallocation of resources. I don't know. But, uh, you know, solving big problems is important, but there's a lot of small problems that probably need yeah. some attention as well. well. And, where, and where are those, where are those solutions? I, I have to tell you a story because you just reminded me. I took psychedelics once, once, <laughs> to, to, because in, in Fadiman's uh, psychedelic guide, uh, it talked about an experiment they did where they gave 40 people uh, uh, mushrooms 
or LSD and ask them to solve problems, intractable engineering problems or whatever work problems they had. And that it was a very successful experiment. So my friend Neeraj and I, we took two grams each of psilocybin and we had my assistant, Christine, sit and ask us a personality inventory at the beginning just to make sure we stayed serious and, and did some work. So it was things like, how happy are you? How in control of your life do you feel? It was great. We spent a half hour laughing and answering these questions. And then we were supposed to unfurl. We had written down uh, which problem we were going to try and solve. And I opened up my piece of paper and my problem was how to sell more drinks at my bar. Okay? And Neeraj opened up his piece of paper and it was, how do I find my life's purpose? I was like, oh, I need to change my question. <laughs> I, was, I, now, I, feel, I feel like an asshole now. Um, so then, so, we're, we're, so we said, okay, let's, let's deal with mine first. I think it's going to be easier to sell more drinks at my bar. And Neeraj said, uh, okay, first, before we get into this in detail, Sanjay, um, what did your staff say when you asked them how to sell more drinks at the bar? And I started laughing. It took me 30 seconds to calm down. And I said, it never occurred to any of us to ask the staff how to, how to sell more. So, so I made that note. We came up with a couple of other uh, ideas. And the next day, or actually later that day, I went and asked uh, a couple of the servers, hey, why, you know, why is there such a bottleneck? Why can't we sell more drinks? They said, there's not enough point of sale stations in the bar. If you put one over there and one over there, it would cost you a grand total of know, $600 and it'll double our throughput overnight. Like, Jesus, God, okay. I guess you have to ask, yeah. right? Uh, but that was awesome. And then, and then in that same session with, with Neeraj, we attacked his life purpose. I came up with some answers to things, Ronan. I discovered for myself the definition of good and evil and how to make decisions about moving forward in the future so that you're not evil. I discovered how to, how to tell who your best friends are, your closest friends are. Um, and we discovered his life's purpose, which was uh, learning and, and applying those learnings to make a, a better world. Hmm. It was phenomenal. So I, I encourage, I encourage psychedelics are the way that we're going to become more creative with how we spend our time and how we solve society's problems. So don't and leave sell us more drinks. Sorry. And, and sell more drinks. Don't leave us <laughs> hanging. So how do you uh, de determine the difference between good and evil? And how do you know who your true friends are? Ah, okay. Yeah, sorry. That was leading. That was a leading statement. <laughs> right. um, so, good and evil. Um, I was I was perplexed by the notion that two soldiers in a war in a conflict could be trying to kill each other and yet both be thinking that they're doing the right thing and that they're acting in a noble fashion. That bothered me. So, what came to me was that the only thing that matters in determining whether something is good, bad, evil. Uh, good and bad, specifically evil is a, a different concept, but good and bad is how you are going to feel about it in the future. And so if, you know, whether I should, whether this is, should I shoot this person? Should I eat this donut? Should I have this drink? How are you going to feel about that tomorrow? And how are you going to feel about that five years from now? That is the only definition that matters. It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what the actual consequences are. Uh, but what you think in the future. And subsequent to that realization, I think about my problems that way all the time, is what am I going to think tomorrow? And what am I going to think five years from now? And often the answer is I'm not going to care, in which case just do whatever you feel like doing. Yeah. You know, I, um, I also discovered that on the subject of evil, that evil is really just a question of selfishness and it's on a spectrum. Uh, you're not selfish at all. You're very selfish. 
the more selfish you are, the more evil you come across and the more dumbass stuff you're going to do to other people because you don't care. It's all about yourself. And, and on the friends, it was, and I can't believe I didn't realize this before, but it was how much does that person's happiness affect my happiness? Hmm. And the more it does, the closer I am to them, the closer of a relationship that is. But if I really don't care, and this was actually in the conversation with, with my friend, with Neeraj, where we were talking about helping out somebody else. And I think I made the comment that, you know, you're not that close to that guy. Why, why would you help them? And he said, well, because, you know, shouldn't you help everybody? Well, you can't help everybody. How important is it for you for that person to be happy versus, say, your wife being happy? If you made your wife 5% happier or made that, that guy 5% happier. And, and the answer then, it suddenly became blindingly obvious. Obviously, your wife being 5% happier is going to have a much larger impact. So go work on that. Yeah. I, I love the question of, of good and evil or good and bad. Because I even in high school, when uh, I was reading uh, Mac, uh, sorry, Hamlet by Shakespeare, uh, and there's the line that goes something like, there is nothing neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. And I was struck by it back then, which is I've come to the realization, maybe in part precipitated by psychedelics, but maybe not, uh, that that really is the case, that there is nothing good or bad. The, the universe doesn't care if a giant comet hits the planet and destroys all life. It has no particular compunction about doing that. In fact, it's done it a couple of times. It just hasn't been totally successful at the job. Um, and so it made me realize that like good and good and bad, good and evil, it's it's a definition that we get to craft. But it really makes it a fundamental question is so much of what we get in life is what we decide for ourselves. And it's not, it's not, it's it's all about function of perspective. Um same with um, you know, as you were talking about um, you know, your bipolar and, and anorexia. You know, one of the things that sort of came up to me is, I think you referred to them as mental disorders. And I, I was struck by the question of, are they disorders at all? Or are they just part of the human experience for certain people? You know, is there actually something wrong per se? Or is it just an aspect of who you are that is fundamentally malleable, right? Like if you're extremely overweight and out of shape, you can always get back into better shape. That's an option. But being overweight and out of shape isn't necessarily wrong or, or bad, uh, it just is, and and that's part of the human condition. And that's certainly, you know, I'm speaking more to the genetics, like lifestyle choices are obviously choices inherent, but things like mental disorders are often genetically driven and all that kind of stuff. I think, I don't know, I, it was just a question. I don't, I'm not proposing to have a concrete answer, but it is an interesting thought of like, maybe the DSM, like, you know, when, it, when I go and get a blood test and they show my results, it's like, all it's showing is where I stack up in a statistical order as to what is normal. That's not really <laughs> no, a definition no. of offside. Absolutely. You're right. It's just a statistical uh, definition. And if you look, think about bipolar disorder, all that means is some days I feel really good and some days I feel really bad. Yeah. I think that applies to absolutely everybody. I just happen to statistically fall outside the normal range of, of what, of the peaks of the, the good and the troughs of the bad. And, you know, I, one of the best, comments my daughter ever made when I asked her, why, why, she, why can't you just eat a little bit more right, to solve the anorexia? And she said, you know, Papa, you had a heart attack when you were 40 and you know that eating less will make you healthier. So why can't you just eat a little less? And it's like, damn, she's right. And, you know, and 
being overweight isn't called a mental disorder. But being yeah. underweight is a mental disorder. I don't know who decides that. You're right. It's it's we thought it's so, and so it became that. Yeah, I, I didn't know you had a heart attack at at 40. Yeah, I cover it up well. <laughs> yeah, you do. Uh, it was a minor heart attack, but I, I had to go to the hospital. They triaged me in, hooked me up to everything, came out and said, "Yep, you had a heart attack." Jesus. Uh, and now, during an ayahuasca session, I actually had the shaman put his finger right on exactly the bit of my heart that's damaged and say, I sense blackness here. And I hadn't told him anything about it. I thought, okay, this is the first evidence I had that the shaman actually knew what he was talking about. Uh, yeah, I sense blackness and rage here and you're going to have to do something about this. Well, okay. That was, that was, that was interesting. But long-term, not much damage. And did that experience with the shaman or has your experience with psychedelics uh, changed your belief structure in terms of what's happening in this world. Um, you know, because if you're anything like me and, and my business partners, Joseph and Hanan, we were all, and most of us are still are hyper rationalists, which is like, it's all science. It's all logic. If it can't be measured by science, it doesn't exist. There is no reality outside of that. I'm probably much more on the mystical side of things, being open to a lot more that we can't explain than, than some of the others. No right or wrong, but I'm just wondering if your perspectives around um, life, the universe, and everything uh, have changed uh, as a result of your 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 work with psychedelics, or just generally speaking. My perspectives have absolutely changed uh, in in some pretty dramatic ways. If I think of myself. Even three years ago, when I just started this journey, I was a climate change denier. I would might accept that there was a growing gap between the wealth and the poor, but I didn't think it was a real problem. Um, so those are two specific beliefs that have changed dramatically. But maybe even a more a su- more subtle but more profound shift between being hyper rational and being more spiritual and intuitive is that I've started to trust my right brain a little bit more that when I feel an intuition about something, I'm more likely to believe it. And I'll give you a really good example here on the value of somatic therapy, which is the value of physical touch and, and how much your body can store up trauma or solving your body's issues can solve things that seem like much broader mental health issues. I, uh, I was contemplating funding a study on somatic therapy to decide to see in the underground community, in the therapeutic community, pretty much everybody believes in somatic therapy. But I just didn't see it. I'd been treated once uh, by a Reiki healer, and I think I just fell asleep. There was no, I didn't feel any better afterwards. You must have felt so refreshed afterwards. Come on. <laughs> well, because I had a nice nap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then, but then. So I had the experience with the shaman where clearly he detected something and he treated it with, with heat. And I did feel uh, a little better afterwards. But more dramatically, I tried 5-MeO-DMT and, uh, for the first time just a few months ago. Amazing experience. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing more research come forth on what that drug can do uh, for people. But after the session, I found myself vibrating for a good 45 minutes. And it, the, it suddenly came to me in this burst because during a 5-MeO session, when you're fully under, your conscious, your left brain is offline, your vocabulary, the center that records things, everything's offline. And when it came back, my right brain was screaming at me internally that of course somatic therapy works, you idiot. 
uh, I've been trying to tell you that through your body all along and you weren't listening, but thank you for taking this little break from hyper-rationalism so I could, I could get a word in edgewise and let you know that it works. And since then, it's like, no, it works. And then, and where the rubber hits the road on listening to my intuition, I met recently with a gentleman, Floyd Marinescu, here in Toronto. Do you know, know that Floyd. name? Yeah, I know Floyd. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So champion of universal basic income. And this is one of those things that I would have, again, five years ago, you asked me, with it. you cannot provide a universal basic income. It will remove the incentive for people to work. And it's, it's too much like communism, never going to work. But when I met with Floyd, I had this pounding going on in my right, it wasn't literally on my right brain, but just some sense, I had this sense that he was right, that universal basic income will work. I don't have the vocabulary, the, the bullet points yet on exactly how and why, but I believe it will. I think it's a, it's a really nice compromise between you know, the, the more socialist idea that the state has to take care of everybody versus the, the more capitalist idea that market forces will solve everything. You know, it retains market forces, but puts in place a safety net that's so universal that it, it will fundamentally affect the choices people make in society. And I've seen this with, with CERB, for example, already, which was kind of a universal basic income that came in during COVID. I don't know anybody who was just sitting at home. You know, there's this massive labor shortage in the restaurant industry in which I participate. But I don't know of any people that were just sitting at home collecting their $2,000 a month and not working. And that's the reason that we were short-staffed. That's not the reason we were short-staffed. We were short-staffed because we operate in an industry that's historically underpaid its workers, that's historically mistreated its workers. And they were just sick and tired of it. And they all, during COVID, they all used the opportunity to go get trained and do something different and go do something that was more personally fulfilling for them. And we, to get them back, we have to make it a better job, which is fantastic for society. I'm, I'm happy that we've been given the kick in the butt, kick in the butt to go make these jobs better jobs. So I, I have the evidence, I have all the evidence I need that universal basic income is an idea that, that we need to work towards. Mm -hmm. uh, I just need to build out the, 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 the rationality for the hyper-rationalists. Yeah. I mean, I've, it's been a concept that I've subscribed to, uh, quite a bit, um, because people don't like being bored and people don't like, uh, like, I think for most people on the planet, my, my instinct says, we like being productive. Maybe we don't like being productive, serving other people food, you know, for like snippy attitudes because there's not enough salt on it or it's not hot enough for sure. But people like to do things constructively and, and you know, in a very psychedelic way, just um, spitballing on this. It's like, what if everybody was free to do what they were passionate about and they were most called to do and had the most capability right. to do? You know, it's not serving people in a restaurant. Maybe you love that. That's fantastic if you do. But I'm sure a lot of people go to work doing things to pay the bills because they have to, not because they want to. What if we freed those people up to actually do something that they're passionate about and, and create something of, of real potential value? Um, you know, and, and it totally spitballs off what I've been thinking about vis-a-vis -vis AI and technology. You know, almost all jobs, uh, almost all human functions are going to be surpassed in our ability uh, by robots and computers at some point and probably not too distant future. So what is left to humanity if we don't have to work? And, you know, I think it really resolve, revolves around the realms of art and creativity. 
you know, that's, that's all that's left. And, and I'm not sure robots will ever be able to match, you know, the human capability for, um, for those two things, right? Because they're fun, fundamentally linear um, and creativity by definition is non-linear. Uh, so I totally agree with you uh, in terms of that, but it's, there's no, it's hard to, to mathematize if that's a word, um, the belief that most people actually want to be productive just in their own way. Now, there's always going to be some people who play the system and that's fine, you know, um, but I think most people like to be productive. In fact, there was a, a podcast uh, called Hidden Brain, um, you know, where they talked about bullshit jobs uh, and bullshit jobs were described as jobs that mm-hmm. have um, high pay and high regard or high esteem, but people feel useless doing it. You know what the number one bullshit job was? I'm going to go with investment banker, but uh, pretty close. What was it? Corporate lawyers. <laughs> right. Right. And they paid a lot. Yeah. It's a very like prestigious job. And most people are like, I'm wasting my time in my life and on, on these pursuits. Again, not everybody, but it's a, it's a very interesting thing. And, and, you know, going back to one of the things you said about problem, problem solving, I think one of the tensions in the evolution, uh, evolution of psychedelics is, the competing forces between trying to solve mental illness and trying to free up people's creativity, which aren't necessarily diametrically opposed, but they're not always aligned. Uh, and I know certainly like my passion is what happens if we empower humanity to be its best. Um, but there's probably a, a step that has to be solved first. Of Do we need to bring everybody up to some sort of baseline uh, to make that an equitable opportunity, or does it make sense to lean a little bit into our and ran modality of like, let's free up the most capable to be the most capable they can. And hopefully through trickle down effect, you know, that'll create a foundation to raise everybody up. And, and for all the, you know, uh, limitations of capitalism and all the, um, exhortation about how terrible it is. We do need to recognize that we live with close to 10 billion people on the planet. There are less people starving, less people like infant mortality is at its lowest rates in history. War is at its lowest rates in history. It's like, we're still trending on the right trajectories. And, you know, we got a lot of problems to solve, but uh, that's been largely a pursuit of capitalism in part, and I guess a very robust military industrial complex as well. Um, but uh, curious to know your thoughts on on that tension between solving mental illness um, and enabling people to, you know, uh, achieve the greatest creativity. You know, I think the great thing about psychedelics, but it's not just psychedelics. All psychedelics do is accelerate the process of insight and self-discovery and self, self-improvement. But access to them also makes you think about other people more and think about how connected we are. So all of a sudden, we're going to get all of this force of creativity, forces of productivity, because people who were previously disabled due to their health problems will perhaps be able to rejoin productive society. And we're all going to do it with a greater sense of societal good. My God, we're going to propel ourselves forward. The world that we're going to live in 20 years from now. I get emotional when I start thinking about all of these people, you know, the Christian Angermeyers of the world, you know, doing psychedelics with a view towards getting better and becoming more conscious about good uh, uh, in the world. There's a brilliant guy who, given 
given the right impetus, is going to put all of that brilliance and and capital towards making a more equitable planet. I mean, he's doing some great things now with the companies he's funding, but I don't think he's, I, at least I'm, I'm not aware of the direct work he's doing on the philanthropic front of solving societal problems. You know, and, and, and no, and I'm not trying to throw any shade his way. You know, everybody has their own timeline for, for doing these things. I just happen to hit mine. Right. Do you think there's an advantage to philanthropy versus investing? Um, you know, you could be an investor focused on investing in for-profit companies, you know, really not focused on making a return as opposed to being a philanthropist uh, and, and funding through donation bases. Do you think that has an impact on it? Because if I was if I was channeling my inner Christian Angermeyer, his response is, we're doing the same thing. You know, I just think investing in startups that are for profit is going to be uh, an accelerated way to get there versus nonprofits, which tend to move at, you know, and certainly I think you've experienced this in some of your donations at, at very different paces. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to be the first person to say you need both, both approaches. Yep. You need market forces, but you also need the social forces that temper the worst inclinations of market forces. And, you know, a perfect example is in psychedelics, the main molecules that are being researched right now, uh, the public public domain molecules, 5-MeO-DMT, MDMA, and psilocybin, none of them are patentable, uh, or at least MDMA was, but it, it's been out of patent for, for quite a while now. Yep. So there's a, a bunch of companies racing to develop new compounds that aren't really needed. I mean, some of the new compounds, each one will have its own slight benefit, but the benefits of using the base unpatented compounds are tremendous, a tremendous leap forward over, over where we are today. And because no pharmaceuticals, no investors are going to invest in those compounds, you have to have philanthropy driving them forward. And those are going to be the most cost-effective ways of treating people in the near term. And then natural forces of, of capitalism will come in to make products more accessible, to make them more widely used. And that's fantastic. So you've got that happening on the demand side, on the creativity side, but on the pure treatment side, you'll have philanthropy driving a ton of good in the world. And, and I've got to believe more so in the psychedelic system of care than I've seen in any other industry. And that's got to be because the philanthropists in this space are simply more in tune with the needs of society and the fact that, again, societal uh, needs are the ones that we should be the most concerned about. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know if MAPS pioneered the model that they have, which kind of really actually blends nonprofit and for-profit through a public benefit corporation, but they're still for-profit in a way that creates a self-sustaining model um, that I think leverages some of the benefits of a for-profit uh, while harnessing or, or limiting the downside because all profits get reinvested to continue research. So it's it's fundamentally self-sustaining. And, and I think whether or not uh, Rick pioneered that model, uh, I think it's going to be the foundation for a lot of opportunities going forward. Um, and so I think that's one of the great innovations that's going to come out of this, let alone all the power of psychedelics and all that kind of stuff. There's a, a new model that really is, I think, getting a lot of traction and, and people will look to in the future. Um, you're part of the uh, Psychedelic Science Funders Collaborative. What are, what, what are you seeing there? What are the conversations uh, amongst the people within um, that community? Uh, what are they seeing? What are their hopes? What are their anxieties? 
And also, um, on the anxiety side of things, you've seen a lot of everything that's happened in the industry because you've been in it for a long time in the sort of latest incarnation of it. Um, and what are your perspectives? You know, there's a lot of rumbling and commentary about how Compass Pathways has gone about doing things and, and all that kind of stuff and, and concerns around patenting and, and, and that. And so what are your perspectives and what are the kind of voices within the uh, PF? Uh, SC. I always have to think about P, that. P, PSFC. PSFC. Yes, sorry. Thank you. Damn it. Well to get that Damn one. it. So, right. So, what PSFC has done, and and so you know that that's a group of, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's in the realm of like thirty to fifty people. A lot of them in the U.S., but some scattered around the world, like myself, and we all just have our ideas on what we should be funding in the psychedelic philanthropic ecosystem. So, a bunch of people banded together to help fund the Oregon legalization initiative. And we're successful with that. Other people, we, I just see emails coming through every once in a while if they want to do this indig, indigenous reciprocity initiative or, hey, we need $50,000 to complete this study on Ibogaine for addiction disorders or opiate use disorder in Spain. And just random things coming in that aren't high dollar numbers, but that we wouldn't know about more broadly, if it wasn't for these individual philanthropists finding out about them and then having a channel through which they can promote these causes to uh, a much broader audience. So PSFC has been fantastic for that. And of course, their their biggest achievement so far has been raising the $30 million for the MAPS Capstone Challenge. And they'll be active in getting MAPS more money as they continue with their second FDA Phase 3 trial for uh, MDMA for PTSD. Yeah, On the Worst excesses of patents. Oh boy. Compass Pathways is like a has become a bit of a whipping boy. You know, I don't believe that the CEO there, George Goldsmith, is a bad person. I don't believe that at all. I've spoken to him personally. I've spoken to to his wife, Katarina. They're in this for the right reasons. They want to make the world a better place. But they also took money from a bunch of people who want to make money. Maybe they don't. Uh, they don't, wouldn't object to the world being a better place, but frankly, they don't give a damn as long as they can charge $10,000 a gram for psilocybin. And this is where you've got market forces. I mean, systems rule the world. So you've got market forces that push everything in one direction and you've got social forces that push things in another direction. And so the worst excesses of Compass and what they've done with their patent applications has been countered by a nonprofit called Freedom to Operate that was philanthropically funded that challenged every patent claim they ever made and successfully knocked back, I think, some, 95% of the patent claims that Compass Pathways has gone for, which has allowed Compass to get patents on things that are genuinely innovative, which was their method of crystallizing psilocybin, but not for things like weighted blankets and classical music being played in treatment rooms. Yeah, no, it's a, and I, I agree with you. I think they've been probably somewhat unfairly uh, made a, a whipping post for the conversation, but it, uh, you know, um, some of it I think is valid, and, and some of it probably uh, not. Um, your focus recently uh, has been, I guess, two questions. One is you seem to have a particular interest and um, I guess hope for five meo DMT. Um, you know, you mentioned your experience with it, but what is it about 5-MEO that you find uh, particularly motivating um, uh, and of interest? And, um, you know, uh, if you want to comment on the work or the 
you know, what USONA is doing. Cause I think you have a good read on that. And then secondly, um, with the, I just want to make sure I get the name right. The Nikain Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy uh, at UHN. What is your grand hope for what comes out of that research? If you could say like, hey, we achieved X, you know, that is the home run I was hoping to hit uh, with the with the center. Uh, what would that be? All right. Let me answer the second one first, because because I have a funny story that happened just recently. Our hope with the UHN grant and creating that center is that UHN, which includes Toronto General and several of Toronto's leading hospitals, Canada's leading hospitals, our hope with UHN was just giving credibility to the research efforts. Saying UHN in the same breath as saying psychedelic research implies that there's something real here. And I got a call from from, uh, an an older woman who's in fact our landlord here at the office of the foundation. And um, she said she had heard the announcement and as a result of hearing that announcement, was curious about whether psilocybin could be used for pain management. Hmm. And we don't have any solid research on this. Lots of uh, anecdotal evidence that, especially for headaches, cluster headaches and migraines, psilocybin is extremely effective. For broader things, I, you know, my mother has tried it and, and she found it effective for arthritis. But we don't have research. We need research. But the fact that this person called me asking about psilocybin was only because UHN was linked to it. And so that's our grand hope. Our grand hope is that somewhere down the road, Health Canada is quoted saying that it's UHN being involved and their research that's allowed us to legalize psilocybin and legalize MDMA. So uh, that's, sorry, that one. On 5-MeO-DMT, there's one overwhelming reason why 5-MeO is is so potentially, uh, I guess, moving in this space, and that's its duration of action. Right. It takes the entire trip lasts 15 minutes. And even though it takes took me the first time I tried it, it took me 30 minutes to learn how to speak again. Uh, so let's call it 45 minutes. Yeah. I, you know, this is something where you can be in and out in two hours and be able to interact with normal society again. So and also, there's no interaction during that time. So while it's useful to have somebody there holding your hand or maybe monitoring your vitals, it's a very safe drug, but let's go to an extreme. It's still dramatically cheaper at the level of having licensed therapists or licensed professionals monitoring you than, than it is to get a psilocybin treatment uh, or MDMA, which is typically four to six hours with two trained people in the room with you. So typically a single psilocybin session might cost anywhere from $2,500 to $3,500, but a single 5-MEO session might cost $500. And again, we don't have the research yet. We don't know if it's as effective. Certainly my experience with it has been that it had some, made some dramatic impact on my life. But because it's only 15 minutes, I can't really tell you what happened. With, whereas with psilocybin on a six-hour trip, I have a whole story yeah. about what happened. Yeah, that's actually going to be my my question, which is, um, I guess two. One was a comment that like part of your decision to partner with UHN for the Nikkei Foundation came from one of those experiences, right? Like there was just like that intuition that came out of it. But um, it is, uh, I'm saying that correctly, right? That that is one. Yeah, I'm- no, you're, you're absolutely right. I came out of that five MEO trips, basically saying, "Don't create your own research facility. Give the money to people who know what they're doing." And uh, Hence the Nikkei Center. And I, to be clear, I was advocating Sanjay to go the other way, being like, 
control the whole thing. That way you don't have to worry about bureaucracy or having to argue about anybody about getting your way, but I'm glad you landed on the place that was right for you. Um, and then the second thing, and, and this actually came up, uh, because we recently had an experience, um, down in Boston where, uh, instead of smoking 5-MeO, we encephalated it, I think is the right word. Basically you snort it. Uh, and the rationale for doing that is when you smoke it, you go from zero to, you know, rocket launch almost instantaneously. Um, uh, whereas if, if you encephalate, if I'm saying the word right, um, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. a little bit slower of an onset and you remember more so you can bring some of the memories back with you. And so again, you don't have the science. So I'm just asking for your intuition. How much do you think being able to bring back the experience with you, uh, it's important. How much is it just like your subconscious going at it, doing its thing, and then you just get what you need and, and you come back? I have a suspicion that there's two different things going on and that 5-MeO allows your right brain to just get out and stretch uh, a little bit and take over a little bit of control because I had the strangest things happen after my 5-MeO experience. I, you know, my workouts, I recover faster. My tennis game is better. My first serve percentage went from 10% to 60%. Wow. How do you explain that kind of thing other than I defragged part of my brain? But to accomplish deeper psychotherapeutic goals. Like for me through psilocybin, I've, I've discovered I had emotional barriers I'd put up to other people that had developed during childhood and never had the opportunity to, to take back down. To do that, I think requires you to be able to examine things and evaluate them in a, in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. And that requires a narrative and requires a, a trip where you can remember what actually happened and that you can then discuss it with your therapist afterwards. The way I envision myself operating in the future is to do a really uh, a high-dose psilocybin trip regularly, but not often, maybe like once a year or so, but 5-MeO a bit more often, maybe once a quarter because of the, the physical benefits that I feel. And purely somatic physical benefits, my body just feels better. I feel like I've released trauma or released pain and I don't even know how it got there. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's from my own lifetime or my own body, but I've got, I haven't gotten so spiritual yet that I'm saying that I'm, I'm shaking off trauma from, from past lives. Uh, but I don't know what's going on. Yeah, that, that, that's entirely fair. And I think that's an appropriate response. And, um, yeah, it does definitely feel like when you go through this experience, you're shaking stuff off. Um, you know, I don't think my my tennis game, which has always sucked, um, has improved, although <laughs> I haven't played. But it is really interesting to see it here how like, you know, so much of our physical abilities are are fundamental, mental, fundamentally a mental consideration. Um, and and when you lose those consciously or unconsciously, like in the case of five meo. Um, it opens up a lot. Do you think there's a, a concern? One of the concerns I have about DMT and 5-MeO-DMT is, you know, if I'm a psychedelic novice, uh, never experienced psychedelics, but looking for real treatment, going from zero to 5-MeO-DMT uh, is kind of like going from zero to Tesla, uh, to quote your book. Um, <laughs> and do you think that's a problem or a concern? Or do you think that, like, how do you see that kind of evolving? Do you think people kind of work up? Because people ask me this question all the time, being like, what do you think the future looks like? And I think the future looks like much like the underground, which is, you're ex not experimenting, but you're working with like MDMA, you're working with psilocybin, you're working with 5-MeO, because they all open up different things and offer different perspectives. Um, but going from zero to DMT is, is I think, pretty bold, uh, but just curious to know your perspective on it. 
Yeah. So the first time I tried, okay, let me just say I was skeptical. I, sorry, in line with what you just said, I thought it's too powerful experience and experience. 5-MeO-DMT is the most powerful psychedelic. Why would you start with that? You'll start with something a little bit softer. Except then somebody who's very close to me tried 5-MeO-DMT as their first psychedelic. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. and they were a psychedelic skeptic. And, um, you know, I think, I think you, I think you know who this is, but it's, you know, it's, this is her story, not my story. So, um, so I won't drag her into it, but, uh, tried it and did the three levels. So this was the way of starting off softly. You know, the people, practitioners in 5-MEO, um, call it a handshake, a hug, and then the full embrace. And which is, I think, corresponds to five milligrams, 10 milligrams, and 15 milligrams of vaporized 5-MEO. And the five milligrams is kind of floating along and you call it a light psilocybin experience. You're floating along. It's kind of beautiful. Uh, you wouldn't mind doing that for a while. Ends in 15 minutes. The 10 milligrams was some deep breathing uh, and some tears and experiencing some level of release, but still being kind of aware of what was going on. 15 milligrams, you have no idea what happened. You come back. She had some vague recollection that she encountered some dark mass and she broke through it. And had some very specific realizations after she came back to the the left brain rational world about what she had learned and and how she might be a different person and some improvements in her emotional response to things, but um, but you couldn't remember any of the experience itself. So when I talk to somebody about their five meo experience and they say, "Oh, I was centered in white light and I was floating through space and it was oh so so, so beautiful." My reaction is, you didn't take enough. <laughs> if you remember anything at all, you didn't take enough. I think given, given that little escalation model that, that's been developed, I think 5-MEO is perfectly acceptable as a, as a first-time uh, voyage. I have, I have two more questions for you. One is a little bit more pragmatic because I like to enable people um, who listen to walk away with something of, of tangible knowledge. Um, and one of the questions I get posed often is you know if I'm interested in getting involved in the emerging psychedelic industry um, or psychedelic space, I try and avoid the word industry because it has uh, connotations associated with it. Where do you think someone who is keen to get started should be focusing uh, on this space? If you're not coming from a purely you know scientific background and, and can go into drug development research and, and the academic research, where where do you think the opportunities are? We because we have a charitable foundation, we spend a lot of time thinking about. There's a thousand points of light that are needed in the in the system of care, the psychedelic system of care, and where where's what's missing, and so we found, for example, on the purely philanthropic front, uh, providing access, scholarships, like training therapists, is going to be the biggest gap between now and five years from now. Yep. So, what can we do to make sure more therapists are trained? What can we do to make sure their like, existing therapists are educated, so that they seek out psychedelic training? And then making sure that all the other therapists that are being trained are trained well enough to operate in a much more powerful, effective field of therapy uh, than than current therapy sometimes is. Um, you know, developing licensing bodies, uh, insurance plans, conferences for people to learn more, writing books. So if somebody wants to get started, I would say get started by reading and doing a little bit of research. And the place to start, the book I always recommend is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Go read that. It'll give you a nice broad background on what's going on in the space. And, and then 
you're going to want to watch a few things. And uh, Ronan, you're working on a documentary that's going to come out a little less than a year from now. And everybody should watch that documentary. Absolutely. Uh, I believe it's going to be called Ordinary Trip. Yeah. So I'm pre, I'm pre, <laughs> I'm pre, I'm pre, um, uh, promoting All right, thank you. Uh, the, the, the documentary. Um, and then once you've read the book, feel free to reach out to us, send an email to, uh, from our website and we'll send you back some links to other resources and other ways you can learn to help. And, and, you know, the more educated you are, the more uh, creative you're going to be. Very true. Oh, that's great advice. Um, and thank you for the pre-promotion on Ordinary Trip. Um, it's going to be fun. And obviously, Sanjay is part of the evolution of that. So stay tuned because uh, hopefully we'll have some more news soon on that front. All right. My last question. Um, and it's probably the hardest. Um, uh, and I, sh I think going forward, I'm going to send this question in advance so people can think about it for a little while, which is, when we were at Code Conference, we were talking about, I was kind of wrapped up in this idea of the question to like, to what end? Which is like, if psychedelics hold as much promise uh, as uh, we think they might, you know, and they really address, we, we enable uh, a platform that creates mass mental health and people work through their stuff and, and we can leave trauma behind. It doesn't stop trauma from happening, but now we have... You know, just like you have an infection, you can hit an antibiotic and it makes it better. We have protocols and mechanisms that can help people deal with trauma much more effectively. So we enable mass mental health and we create a system of, you know, um, uh, uh, mental hygiene and mental wealth in the words of Kelsey Ramsden from MindCure. You know, I keep coming back to the question of like, to what end? What does the world look like if we enable that? Does it actually solve the problems or is it just kind of like is the is it an ever moving gobble post because as sam harris and i were discussing at code you can't live in a perpetual state of ecstasy you know you can't live in peak performance uh, all the time so there's always going to be that swing back and forth between the highs and, and maybe the the lows are higher than the previous lows but there's always going to be that back and forth and i kept wrestling with it and I kept wrestling with it and i came to the answer it's it, the question is not to what end does all this work the real question is what do we want the end of this to look like, right? We have the choice to craft what this narrative is. If there's one thing I've learned from all the work I've been doing and uh, my work with psychedelics, and even going back to that Shakespeare quote of there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, I think one thing we need to not do is just let things advance without a clear focus on what we want the outcomes to be. Um, because even though it's in the general right direction, uh, forward is a very broad, broad area. So my question to you is, what do you want this to look like at the end of it? If everything we're working on right now comes to fruition exactly as we think it can, what does the outcome? What does the ideal world look like to you? Because I think it's important that we start talking about that and actually crafting something that is very humane so we can work towards that specifically instead of going along for the ride. Great question. Great, great thoughts to ponder. And a couple of responses come to mind. So one is on the notion of what I talked about earlier of how do you know if something's good or bad? There's all this development, there's all this focus on psychedelics and on becoming men mentally healthier. What's that going to lead to? Well, it's going to lead to something better. So every time I've taken psychedelics and thought about improving something or, or healing something, I've gotten better. And so future me thinks, well, this is better. So future me is happy. And, and 
I'm a little bit more resilient and and operate better in the in in whatever my my present is, and then I'll go forward again. So what I anticipate is a future where everybody thinks, well, now is better than than where we were two weeks ago, two years ago, twenty years ago. Whereas I don't think people necessarily feel that now. There are lots of aspects of society which I believe temporarily have turned for the worse. You know, a focus on on megalomaniac leaders uh, around the world and disengaging from group efforts like um, uh, the European Economic Union. Yeah. Uh, and and those are temporary downturns that are, that are going to reverse. But but yeah, things aren't always better. The the, the second thing that's going to happen is as more of the world becomes financially secure as resources get spread more evenly, you're simply going to see less suffering. And I think that's the vision that we should all have in mind is that not that you should never be unhappy, but there should be less suffering. You should choose to, you should be able to choose the pain that you want. Like anybody who's got kids is going to tell you that kids, raising kids can be, there's some suffering involved. But, but people tend to not feel um, hard done by because they chose that suffering. What you don't want is the bank foreclosing on your house. Nobody chooses that kind of suffering. Um, so let's think together, how do we get to a world where there's less suffering, less and, and more people who just get to live a life every day that's of their choosing and that gives them uh, a sense of uh, a reward and progress. Yeah, oh, that's a beautiful vision. Um, I think that's a perfect place to stop. I actually have other questions, but I, I don't want to ruin that very, very lovely, elegant image um, by asking more questions. So I'm going to stop and say thank you so much, Sanjay, for joining. I'm glad you've been able to come on. I'd love to have you back on again in the future because you have such a unique insight of everything uh, that's going on from the for-profit to the non-for-profit. You have such a a wonderful perspective on on everything that uh, I think you'll, uh, as things continue to evolve, you'll have a perspective unlike any other. So looking forward to our many personal conversations, but also a more public conversation like we had today in the future. So thank you, Sanjay. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ronan. Uh, it's, uh, I've really enjoyed this and looking forward to next time. It's been said that tunnel vision is a disease in which perception is restricted by ignorance and distorted by vested interest. When a good idea is run through the filters and compressors of ordinary tunnel vision, it not only comes out reduced in scale and value, but in its new dogmatic configuration produces effects the opposite of those for which it originally was intended. It's also been said that wit and playfulness represent a desperately serious transcendence of evil. And in both of these statements, I see some of the reasons I've become so fond of Sanjay over the years and the work he is doing. He was a person who was on a path, the right path, according to many of our societal values with respect to wealth creation. But at some point along the way, he had the courage to take an off-ramp and open himself up to perspectives that few others see. And he's brought wit and humor to that journey. And if nothing else, Simply that act of transcendence is already starting to battle the forces of evil that all of us hope to balance through our work in psychedelics. Hey, Ronan. I'm new to the podcast and love it, by the way, but I'm just curious, how do I find more information on psychedelics in general, but also 
Like, how do I go about getting therapy? What does that look like? And what are the resources for that? Thank you. Thank you for the kind words about the podcast. It is actually the thing I'm most vulnerable about because I still um, find it hard to imagine that people actually care about what I have to say. So and the fact that people are listening is actually very meaningful to me. So, so thank you for that. Um, in terms of information uh, about psychedelics, uh, there are a number of different resources uh, to look at. You know, in this last podcast, we talked about Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. And I think that's a great overview just to get a, like a sense of the landscape. Um, it's very easy to d- dive into specific questions. But I think what's really interesting about what's happening with psychedelics is really understanding how robust the conversation is from the different molecules to the different experiences to the different businesses to the different nonprofits. All of these things uh, have an impact on what's happening. And I think it will help you navigate where you want to be uh, within the the psychedelic experience or the psychedelic landscape. So I'd certainly start with how to change your mind. I would check out maps. Uh, They have a a ton of information. Certainly download um, our trip app, not to be too self-promotional, but there's a lot of great content and information and meditations on there as well, as well as music to support those experiences. Um, These are all great resources and I'm sure there are many other, but they're not coming to to the top of my mind at the moment, but you'll you'll be in good stead if you start there. In terms of finding a therapist to work with, that's um, a little bit more challenging because not all therapists are outwardly open about the fact that they uh, will uh, support psychedelic therapists or can do integration work. I think many therapists, regardless of their experience with psychedelics, can probably do a very good job of helping you land the experience, um, even if it's not as firsthand experiential as you may like. Um, Obviously, at Field Trip, we're building a a network of psychedelic trained therapists. MAPS certainly has a large uh, organization of psychedelic therapists. There are different organizations like the Fireside Project uh, and the Zendo Project, um, which uh, provide people with access to psychedelic support um, during or following a psychedelic experience. So uh, reaching out to one of those uh, groups as well uh, would certainly be constructive. I think there are psychedelic meetups happening all over North America as well. Um, So there's a a lot of places to start looking, um, but no single concrete point of reference to find a therapist who is trained. I think it will take a little bit of navigation and learning, but as things continue to advance towards broader access, legalization and approvals, I think that problem will be solved uh, quite quickly. But in the interim, those resources are probably your best shot. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, Every day is a field trip, if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page and Harley Roman. And associate producers are Sharon Bella, Alex Sherman, Macy Baker, and Tyler Newbold. Special thanks to Cast Media. And of course, many thanks to Sanjay for joining us today. To learn more about his ventures and the work he is doing through the Nikayan Foundation, visit sanjaysinghal.com or nikayan.org. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Click the subscribe button to my left to never miss a release and click here to check out past episodes. See you next week.